2: Welcome to Spark. We tell true stories.
3: We tell them live and we tell them across the UK.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tonight is unlike most of our nights. Tonight we have seven... Amazing storytellers. We've handpicked who all have podcasts in keeping with the podcast festival. So you may have heard of some of these people. You may have heard their podcasts. And this is a chance to hear perhaps like a different side to them, a story from them on the theme. Our, our theme tonight. We always have a theme at Spark. Our theme is uncharted territory. These are anonymous. So these give you ideas. Write something down. We'll collect them during the other stories and read them out in between the storytellers. Um, When have you felt out of place? The gym. And why? The incredulous way Tracy, the gym instructor, asked, You've never been to the gym. (laughs) Thanks for that. Uh, When have you felt out of place? At my boyfriend's family's house. And why? Because they are awful. (laughs) Some lovely, lovely contributions today to start. Start the show. All right. I'm very, very excited, personally, about this first storyteller. This man has a podcast called The Shapeshifters. Uh, he his, supports artists in recognising their talents. He's trained in reconciliation and peace building. He's been to many of our sparks and spoke beautifully to audiences like you, and I'm sure he will tonight. Please welcome to the stage Azariah Williams, ladies and gentlemen. Woo!
2: I was thinking back to when I was three or four and I was stood at the bottom of the steps in my old house in Leeds and I'd zoned out, somehow had gone away in my mind as there was a man coming down the stairs trading insults of the woman who is by my side, my father and my mother, in a blazing row. And somehow... My little three- or four-year-old frame couldn't take, couldn't stand the overwhelming sense of emotion and powerlessness that I felt at that time. And as the man got to the bottom of the stairs, he looked me in the eye, and all I could see was anger. All I could see was rage, was congealed hurt and pain, and it was too much for me. And I retreated inside somewhere for safety. And so he walked out of the door and out of my life, and then it wasn't until I was seven years old that my mum and I had gone to the island of Nevis, where he was then living. And he didn't know that we were coming over. And I remember walking through the town called Charlestown with her. We were walking along hand in hand, and this is my first time, this beautiful, idyllic island. And then... There was a man walking toward us. And mum said, that's your father. And I broke free from her. And I ran towards this man who I hoped would grab me, pick me up in his arms and throw me in the air and catch me and give me some love. And I grabbed onto the side of his trousers. He looked down at me again. This time in his eyes was confusion and pain And then anger, and he pulled away from me and kept on walking away from me and out of my life, leaving me, a seven-year-old boy stood in the middle of this area. My mum here, the man there. Mum was a woman of faith, and she brought me up going to church, and we would sing songs like, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And it was something of faith, something of the family that the church community became to me that gave me something of solidity in my life. It gave me father figures, it gave me men around me who I could trust, people who wouldn't fail their promises, people who would listen and be interested in the things that I was interested in, and that kept me going for some time. And then, when I was mid-twenties, my father had moved from Nevis back to the UK, who's now living in Oxford. Oxford. He was an old guy. He was old when I, was around, when I came along. He was 59 when I came along. Um, he had stamina. There's a sense that we were a couple of generations apart from one another. We were estranged in a number of ways. But from the age of about 19, I started going to spend a day or two with him in hope that something I was looking for, some spark... Something within him would open up, but I always found him to be quite hard, always found him to be quite sullen. He would seek to educate me, and he would say, knowledge is power. I didn't want that kind of power I wanted, the power of love, the power of an embrace, the power of a relationship. I always felt I wasn't quite good enough. He was a bright guy. He was an Oxford Guy. He'd been to Oxford. He'd done his stuff. He was, he was bright. But I remember mid-twenties going and really making a decision. This time, we were going to connect. This time, something was going to happen. By this time, he was in an old people's home. And they had um, a spare room downstairs where guests could come and stay. So I would go and spend time with him. And So I went, arrived there. I was given a key. I went to his door, knocked on his door, went in, we sat down, and he turned the TV on. He's a bit deaf, so he turned it up really loud, and that was us connecting, (laughs) not looking at the TV side by side. It was a woefully pitiful moment. And then I remember, I think, the second or third evening, there was just this moment where, out of nowhere, even with the TV on, he began to just share stories of his life and his childhood and his upbringing. And something of the storytelling that he was sharing began to to excite and began to ignite a flame of hope within me that maybe there was something. And then his favorite show came on, the TV went up again really loud and the moment was gone. An older brother of mine rung me up and said, hey, let's go out for a drink. And so we went out and I was so mad, I was so angry, we went to this nearby pub, and I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was just really wanting this moment of reconciliation. It did not happen, and I was angry. And so I know, the aggression channeled itself into libido. I thought, right, okay, <clears throat> who's here? My brother and I were looking around, and there was a couple of ladies who we were looking back. I was like, okay, <laughs> right, bit of distraction. And so we drank enough to approach them and then drank some more. So they kind of went away because we were a bit pissed and uh, and a bit stupid. (laughs) And so I went back home, dejected, (laughs) the hangover kicking in early. And then I thought, right, that's it. The next day, I didn't even say goodbye to my dad. I just got on the bus into the town to get my coach back home. And then when I got back into the town, I packed my pocket and realized I still had the key for the room.
0: I thought, oh, no.
2: And I rang a friend of mine, and I explained the situation and what had happened. He said, you know what, maybe this could be an opportunity. Why don't you tell your dad the thing that you always wanted to tell him, whether or not he's listening. At least you know you've got it off your chest. At least you know that you've done what you could have done, what's in your power. And so, patting the key in my pocket, I got back on the bus again and arrived. Went up the stairs to where he was, 17, Knight's House in Hedington, in Oxford. Knocked on the door. There was a pause. Remember, he's an old guy. It takes him a while to get up, <laughs> to get his stick, and then to get to the door. So I was waiting. And then the door opened. He stuck his head around and he looked. What the hell do you want? It's like, yeah, oh, nice to see you too, Dad. He so, said, Dad, I, I, f- I forgot the key. He said, oh, oh, okay. So he went to grab the key, and then went to close the door, and I just held the door. I said, Dad, the other night when we began to share stories, and you told me something about yourself, I found my story in your story, and I really like that. And, Dad, I just want you to know that, Dad, I, I love you. I looked into his eyes and his 70 odd years just rolled away and there was this playfulness, this innocence, there was this boy looking back at me and it was a wonderful memory. The memory of him when I was three or four at the bottom of the stairs was my earliest memories but then this was now becoming my favorite memory as I looked him in the eye and I went to give him a hug. And for a moment he melted into the hug. Then he stiffened and went, I don't love no man. <laughs> and took a step back. I gave him the key. We shook hands. And then I went on my way. Because I once was lost. But now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see.
1: Azariah yeah. Williams, ladies and gentlemen. Incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, we're going to now hear from um, Rihanna Dillon. She is uh, the broadcaster and co host with her boyfriend for the Back Row podcast that you may have heard of. Um, she also is um, part of the BAFTA's podcast, The Guru, and she's doing something new called Seriously for Radio 4. Please welcome to the stage Rihanna Dillon, ladies and gentlemen.
3: Thanks very much. Um, so. A few years ago, I was 25 years old, and I was standing in this tiny, dark recording studio. It was a little bit like this room, actually. It was very pretty, in the depths of Radio 1. And I'm watching an interview take place between Greg James, a Radio 1 DJ, and a very famous Australian movie star. Let's call him Jack. And... And and this, this room is so small, so I'm kind of backed up against the glass. And, yeah, so Greg's standing there, Jack's standing there. Greg's producer is sort of hovering nearby. And there's this woman here, who is Jack's publicist, who has just turned to me, and her face is going puce, and is all screwed up. And she's hissing all these horrible expletives in my ear. And I'm completely frozen. I have no idea what to do. I have fucked up so badly. And all I can think is, how the hell did I get here? So when I was young, I, my mum always had Radio 1 on all the time. I, that's kind of like my one experience of radio she was a bit partial to Scott Mills, mainly. you know, It took me a while to tell her she was barking up the wrong tree there. And, you know, I used to bond with people over Chris Moyles. And when I was at uni, me and my friend Sophie went to see uh, Greg James do, like, a DJ night. And we were kind of swooning over him. And once I was, I was sitting uh, in my film and theatre group, um, and my tutor came in. And she was like, guys... Radio 1 is coming to Reading Uni and they're holding a debate and we've forgotten to tell anyone about it so please, 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 can you go along to make up the numbers because it needs to look like they've got an audience. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, yes, of course, that would be incredible. I'd love to. Dragged my friend along who was kind of reluctant. She wasn't a fan, more fool her. And we, we got there and we took part in this debate and we were sort of discussing the merits of 28 Days Later versus Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we also had to do a kind of a little 30-second VT of our favourite film of all time. Now, bearing in mind, this was like a, a film and theatre class can get a bit wanky let's be honest I think Metropolis was floated around in there somewhere. Um, I being of the more lowbrow variety went for Shaun of the Dead still an excellent comedy and uh, didn't really think anything of it. A few weeks later, this debate was then broadcast on Radio 1. All my parts had been cut out. I was devastated. Um, and then kind of just didn't think any more about it at all. And then a few weeks after that, I got an email asking me to come along uh, to Radio 1 because they were sort of looking to expand their research team and wondered if I'd like to take part in this sort of weird interview process. Um, and I did. It was exciting. Got to go out of Reading, go to the big city. And uh, this interview process included interviewing this girl who used to be in Centrillion, so a bit part, you know, and going through this kind of production meeting where we had to discuss what I'd do if I took the Inbetweeners out for the night in Malia, because the Inbetweeners movie was obviously coming up and they were grasping around for ideas. And then there was another bit where uh, James King, who was the, the film critic at the time, pretended to be the DJ, and I had to pretend to be the film critic. And I was really looking forward to that bit. I was like, I know my stuff. I can talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. I'm an Edgar Wright fan. You already know this. And it went so horrible. It was awful. It was so, so bad. I messed up from beginning to end. I was flustered. My notes were flying everywhere. I mean, it was comically awful. And... And then I, I thought, right, whatever that was for this research role, I definitely haven't got it, but that's okay, because I've had a wonderful day. And then a few weeks after this, my mum woke me up. It was my grandma's birthday, my Indian grandma, so my daddi. Uh, and she, so we were going to her house for the day. And she said, oh, James King has just announced on Radio 1 that he's leaving his job. I don't suppose you have got anything to do with that you know that thing that you went to and i was like no they would have told us surely no anyway later that day i got this phone call and it was this exec producer at radio one saying that james king was indeed leaving his job and i was down to the final three to replace him which as you can imagine blew me away i'm sitting it was the most surreal moment of my life i was sitting upstairs in my Duddy's bedroom who was weirdly a big fan of lace and florals and these really creepy dolls. Like, she has this doll thing, and they were surrounding me, staring at me while I was getting this incredible phone call that I might have a job at Radio 1. You know, running around my house, running around her house screaming. My mum was so thrilled, as you can imagine. You know, my Daddy's sitting there going, yeah, where's my cake? Um, and so, a few interviews later, I did then get the job as the film critic at Radio 1, which was... Thank you. It was it was woo-inducing. It was fabulous. Um, and, yeah, I was, like, living my dream. You know, one week, I was writing my dissertation on the men in Jane Austen, two of my passions, men and Jane Austen. And then the next, I am broadcasting my film reviews to seven million-plus people around the world uh, without any media training at all. I had no real idea what I was doing there, you know? I kept expecting someone was going to find me out, realise that I was a fraud and call me out on it, and I was dreading that day. So back to the studio, and I wasn't even supposed to be there. My producer was ill, I think, that day, and so I was taking over. I was the point of contact between the film company and the publicist and Jack and Greg James's team... And I had been told in no uncertain terms that Jack would only be doing a straight interview. Nothing silly, no stupid games, nothing wacky, which is, by the way, the currency that Radio 1 trades on. (laughs) So it was a bit of a tough sell, but I got Greg to agree and it was all going really well. All smiles in the studio. And then Greg suddenly brings up Cricket. And bearing in mind Jack is an Australian, so his face lights up as mine drops because it is the most boring sport under the sun. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see Greg sort of reach beneath the desk, this desk where everything is being recorded, and pull out something that he'd obviously previously planted there, a cricket bat. I'm thinking, interesting, what's he going to do with that? He asks Jack how many keepy-uppies he can do with this cricket bat. I was like, okay. Jack's face lights up, and he's on his feet, and he's kind of squeezing round, brushes against me, squeezes round to get to this cricket bat. And I'm thinking, oh, well, he seems really up for it. And this is the moment when this publicist is just looking furious. And she's swearing in my ear, how fucking dare you? I told you this was a straight interview. Uh, We came in good faith, and now you've completely messed us up. This is exactly what I was afraid of. I am so fucking angry right now. Bearing in mind, this is all kind of like in hissed tones, because this interview is still going on. As soon as she possibly can, she whisks Jack out of the studio, and I'm left with these words ringing in my ears that she will never, ever let Jack come into Radio 1 again. And me, this kind of tiny cog in the wheel of the film industry and the media world, has single-handedly managed to bring about the destruction of this carefully and preciously curated relationship between this Australian movie star and... Radio 1. And I was, I was in bits, you know. I was genuinely in tears. I was furious with Greg and his team for not doing as I told them. And I was dreading telling my producer the next day when he came in. And I sat him down and I told him, and you know what? He did not give a shit. I was like, I've had a sleepless night over this. And I suddenly realised that I was in real danger of losing all that perspective on life, that this publicist had clearly lost years ago. And, um, you know, it, I think it's dangerous enough to believe your own hype, but just, I learnt never, ever to believe in anybody else's. Thank you very much. What a great
1: message. Thank you so much for sharing that. How
0: old
1: OK, we're going to bring up our next storyteller now. Uh, he's, a, he's a friend of the night. He actually hosts one of our nights in Hackney. So go along to that and see him host that expertly. He also does a podcast, the uh, Stand Up Tragedy podcast, the Getting Better Acquainted podcast, and most importantly, a new podcast called The Family Tree. I present to you your last storyteller of the evening, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Pickering. <laughs> Woo.
4: I remember the light, it was pale, bright light and the cloud covered the entire sky in whiteness and I was looking through this fence at my old secondary school and in one hand I held a microphone. And in my other hand, I held a smartphone and I was talking into that microphone. I was narrating my experience of standing there in Cardiff, looking back at that secondary school that I'd been in and thinking about the distance between the child I was then and the man in my late 20s that I was now. And I looked down at my smartphone and someone had tweeted a quote from the actress Lily Tomlin that said, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. And I looked at my school, and I looked at that microphone, and I looked at that smartphone and that quote, and I felt a moment of peace. Now, if you hate yourself, it's really, really tempting not to think about yourself, to find things to distract yourself from thinking about who you are and what made you. And I have certainly been very guilty of doing that in my life. But I didn't always hate myself. Uh, When I was a little kid, I just loved life. I loved the way that the world was. I was really interested in, in things and ideas and fantasies and magic and stories and imaginary worlds. And I loved that. I loved the world. And then when I reached eight years old, that kind of utopia of excitement about ideas and the world was lost to me. And my family kind of started to disintegrate and become an unpleasant uh, place there was a lot of emotional abuse quite a lot of uh, physical abuse and there was kind of like sort of screaming and shouting and mayhem and stories stopped being magical for me and started being a way of escaping from reality of looking away from the world that was around me and th- that family that I had then kind of split apart and we went from Coventry to Cardiff where I went to secondary school the school I was looking at at the beginning of this story. And in that secondary school, I really, really studied really hard how to hate myself because I was bullied and I was othered and I was spat on in the corridors and I was given a nickname and everywhere I went people would ridicule me and so I started to really embrace fiction, telling fiction and and writing songs and telling poems and things like that as a kind of rebellion against that. Uh, I started to think of myself as a kind of tortured artist. I was suffering for my art. My job was to, to take the world and to make it into art. I was separate from other people, that's what I was. And I sort of came up with this idea that I was a method writer, that I went out and had experiences so I could write about them. And that's how I lived my life as a teenager and into my 20s, until one day a friend of mine said to me, why don't you tell a story at Spark London? And I sort of thought about my life and thought, well, I don't know if I've got anything that's going to fit the themes, and I kept an eye on the themes, and every month a different theme would come out, and I'd think, oh, there's nothing that would fit my life in that. And then one day the theme was uh, mistaken identity, and I thought, I've got a story that fits that Theme. So I found myself on a stage telling my first true story, uh, and the story that I told was about when I, uh, one Christmas, when I was around eight years old, uh, the present around the tree that I picked up, it seemed to say "Dad," uh, it seemed to say "Dave" on it. So I unwrapped it. But in fact, it said dad. And that was my stepdad's present. And my mum lost her shit and screamed at me that I'd ruined Christmas, stormed out of the room, stomped up the stairs. My stepdad grabbed me by the arm and pushed me back into the Christmas tree, told me that I'd made my mother cry. And then he hit me. And when I told that story and when I tell that story now, I can still feel the spines of that Christmas tree in my back. And the thing is, I chose that story, I thought, because it fitted the theme. I thought, oh, yeah. And in fact, in the rehearsal beforehand, I was asked, why did you choose to tell that story? And I said, oh, it just fitted the theme, you know. I haven't really got any issues around it. I'm fine. Uh, And now, looking back at it, I properly understand that that story was the story I needed to tell. A story that I needed to start to tell. I needed to start to look at my life and and, and what... created this sense of hating myself within me and around about that time when I was telling that story I also started to listen to podcasts ironically I'd already made podcasts but they were fictional podcasts and I would never really listened to podcasts I started listening to them and the thing I loved about podcasts was people telling true stories having proper communication connecting with each other talking about their lives and I became obsessed with that and I decided I will make my own podcast and I thought how can I create how can I engineer that sense of authenticity that podcasts seem to have so I rung up my two oldest friends who I went to that school in Cardiff with and I invited them to join me for four days in a room in Manchester where we were going to solidly just talk about stuff and like there were different prompts and stuff like that and I thought this would be a great idea for a great show. It was not a great idea for a great show guys. It was a terrible idea for a great show because the thing is first of all that my two friends really just wanted to hang out with me and I wanted to make a podcast so there was already a conflict right at the heart of that show but then after those four days which were difficult and we didn't even stay in the room uh, but it was called four days in a room so I don't know but after those four days it was worse because then I spent an a year and a half of my life going through those four days of material and trying to break them down into bite-sized chunks that would vaguely entertain people and I had to listen to myself a lot and I hated that self that I was listening to because it wasn't even the self I was now because when you get together with your two oldest friends you regress you regress to your 15 year old self and if you hated yourself extra especially at 15 it is really really horrible to listen to that self repeatedly when you should have grown up and I spent that whole year hating myself and at the end of it I was like oh, I do not want people to only know me as a 15 year old version of me and I thought when I have conversations with different people who are not those two old friends I don't regress to when I'm 15 I'm a different person with different people I'll make a show about that and so I started to make a show a new show about people about how to connect with people and I interviewed my closest friends and my family and uh, people I once met at parties anybody basically if you 're in this room you're eligible to be in my show now um, and when I when I did that I was doing it to, to connect with people to have empathy and to see my uh, like them through my you know imagine myself in their place but weirdly one of the things I started to do was to imagine myself from their eyes to see how they saw me to see how all these different people saw me me. And the other thing I made that show to do was to learn how to listen, because I spent... Those four days not listening, and so I wanted to listen to people. And as I listened, as I confronted like the most important people in my life, I started to change. I started to change how I saw myself. I started to change how I interacted with the world. And I didn't just talk to people. I went back to places. So I went back to Cardiff, as you heard at the beginning of the story, and I went back to Coventry, and I sat down with the mother of my best friend from primary school, and we sat in her kitchen and we talked about her life. And one of things which she said to me is that I was a really serious child when she knew me and that really shook my idea of who I was because I didn't remember that myself as a serious child and then I realized that I was already eight when she met me and seriousness had descended on me and so Uh, uh, The first two years of getting better acquainted were euphoric. They were joyous. I was getting to know myself. My life was slotting into place. But anybody who's ever done work on yourself will probably know that that euphoria wears off. You sort of like, you start to get who you are and then, you know, you're still who you are. Uh, And you still have to deal with that every day. But after those two years of euphoria, I still carried on to learn new things. I started to be able to describe myself as a person with mental health issues. I started to understand... I had anxiety and I had depression I started to understand some of the roots of where these things came and I started to feel empathy not just with my guests but also occasionally wonderfully delightfully with my own self and that was a kind of joyous position to be in and I saw myself not as outside not as a tortured artist not as separate but as part of a community part of the human experience that I was struggling to get get through life and so were all the people that I was speaking to and so that kind of like built up and built up and became my life like there is no part of my life pretty much now that is not online that is not recorded and out there you can hear about my sex life you can hear about my traumas it's all out there guys uh, good fun the traumas especially um but yes you so I I became a podcaster I became a person connected with and, and known for truth and honesty and openness and that's great great but it's also a straight jacket because I didn't start off as somebody who talked about my traumas I started off as a little boy excited about imaginary worlds and so on Monday I'm releasing this podcast that says fuck you truth openness and honesty I am now creating some fiction but I guess the question is at this point do I still hate myself and the answer is yes frequently I do hate myself But the difference is that now I know not to trust that hate. I know that hate is a lie, that that hate is not all I am. And I sometimes can put myself into somebody else's position, empathize with myself, and understand that forgiveness does mean giving up all hope for a better past. But that's okay because you have now. Thanks
1: next week we're hosting our third mind night with stories of mental health and creativity
3: all the money raised through tickets goes to support mind in harringay that's thursday the 24th in xmas market doors open at 7 p.m book your place at stories.co.uk